in beautiful Sedalia, Colorado, and here we are, Farm Box Foods Compound, and with my new friends. Here we got to say hello to Alex. How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? Jake, how are you? Fantastic. Always good to see you, man. All right. Uh, this is going to be a cool tour for you. Can't wait to show you. First of all, either one of you jump in. What's Farm Box Foods? We are a company who builds farms and shipping containers. So we make hydroponic and gourmet mushroom farms. Prove it. Let's All right. Go. <laughs> Heading on in to some mushrooms right now. And uh, honestly, what you see is what you get. This is what you're getting if you do business with Farm Box Foods. Heading into the, and now I have not been in here yet. I'm looking forward to this. This is the mushroom one, right? This is the All mushroom right. farm. Take it over. So with mushrooms, we've got a couple steps. Um, this is where we prepare our substrates. So we use uh, sawdust-based substrates in the machine. Uh, allows us to mix everything up. We hydrate everything. Um, this machine really makes it an easy process. Um, and then once we've prepared everything, then we throw it into here. This is our sterilizer. So we run uh, the bags of substrate through here. Um, and then we run these overnight. Everything gets steamed. And after that, then we'll take them out through the other room. So let's go into the lab next. There's fungus among us. I don't know. What's that? It smells like Doritos, but that's not it. What am yeah, I smelling? probably something fermenting. That's probably oh, just some leftover Doritos? substrate in here. Yeah, normally we don't ferment anything for the mushrooms. But yeah, sometimes stuff gets left over in the hopper here. Cool. Jake, take it away. Bring us in here and tell us what you do for Betcha. Farm Box Foods. We'll show you where the Doritos grow. All right. Let's step on in here. Gotcha. So this is uh, this is our lab, and it gets fairly technical. So I might ask for Alex's uh, assistance. Um, but this is where we inoculate. It's got positive pressure, so it keeps everything clean and sterile. Um, you take the bags out of here. You bring them over to your lab here. Inoculate them. Positive pressure. Seal them up, and then we uh, go into the next phase. Don't do that. Alex, what am I looking at here, man? This is really high-tech, got the grow control. Yeah, so um, this, is, uh, this is a controller for the farm. So this is where I can see all of the different components, what's on, what's off. Um, so there's different uh, machines here that allow us to keep different rooms at uh, different temperatures and different humidities. And then at any time, I can monitor what's going on in these rooms. Uh, make sure everything is uh, in the right, uh, within the right parameters. Um, and what's cool with this is I can control any of this remotely too. So, if, um, you know, with the phone, I can turn stuff on and off. Um, and I can make sure everything is good from afar. Wow. Did, does the environment have cameras itself? Are, are there cameras throughout this unit? Um, we can put them in. This one doesn't. Yeah. Um, but one that would make sense would be in the fruiting chamber. Um, but yeah, that's something we can add pretty easily, but we don't have it here. So I'm looking at this and there's obviously uh, farm box foods. You have uh, many methods that you'd like to get out there. This is, could be a supplemental unit for a farm. This could be a restaurant chain that would like to have some of their own growing capabilities. I come in here and I go, okay, Greg, could you work this? How, how, how can somebody get up to be a farm, uh, uh, a mushroom farmer themselves? Sure. Um, so first off, our, our farms come with extensive training. Uh, there's manuals, there's quizzes. So um, when somebody buys a farm, we get them started with um, an online training course so they can get up to awesome. speed before they receive it. Um, and then if they want, um, we come out for a couple of days and train them on site. If they want, they can come and train with us as well. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of resources. And just because you know once they put a down payment on the farm, then there's some time. So this is kind of the perfect time period to start learning about you know what's gonna 
what's going to come with the farm. What an awesome thing. Why would I ever need to wear this in here? So the respirators are for the fruiting chamber. Uh, mushrooms at a certain point, they'll give off spores. So, um, so it's not all the time, but uh, right around the ideal harvest time for the mushrooms, um, they'll start to be given off spores. So the trick is to pick them kind of just before that. But either way, just to be safe, it's a, just a standard operating procedure in any mushroom farm. Do I need it now? Uh, we're okay now, actually. Okay, I better be. What about this area right here? This is kind of cool. It's kind of partitioned off. It's yeah. really important. What am I looking at? So we're standing in the lab, but really this, where we're looking at right now, is actually the lab within the lab. So this is our HEPA flow cabinet. Um, and this is where we do the clean work. So anytime you're inoculating bags, we do it under here. Um, and the HEPA filter ensures that the air that's in here is not full of mold spores or bacteria or yeast or really anything. It's just um, clean air so that nothing else will get in the bags and we can get just our mycelium in there. And this unit comes fully equipped yes. with what you see. Yep. Yeah, everything we see here is, is part of the farm. Is standard. Yep. Another impressive piece of machinery <laughs> down here. What is this? <laughs> so yeah, this is our, um, this is our tumbler. So at my previous farm, um, I had to waste a lot of time just mixing the bags uh -huh. up by hand. The cement um, mixer. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I it's just it. a repurposed cement mixer. Perfect. We we uh, you know we chopped it down a bit, but this saves about half of your time in the lab. So um, this will mix up all your bags for you. So while you're inoculating, you throw them down there, and everything will just get evenly dispersed. This is the prep room right here. This is the lab. This that, is the lab. Yes. This, this is, is the prep room, room, and then this lab. is the lab. And then the next portion is it's the incubation let's chamber. Let's do it. I uh, let's see. go. Find this to be a fascinating process. And really, and can you open up the door real quick just to see? So the misters are going off, and that's what's going on in the fruiting chamber. So this oh. doesn't happen all the time, but periodically, these misters will go off, and just to keep the humidity really high in this room. <laughs> Important to growth. Oh, yeah. What's the temperature in there? So it's about in the mid to low 60s. And then in this room, uh, we keep it in the low to mid 70s. So. Um, Incubation basically means is where the, the mycelium is going to start uh, growing throughout this bag of substrate. So you can see in this room uh, mycelium at different stages of growth. So these bags that are completely white, there's even already some mushrooms growing in here. So these bags are fully, so they're called colonized. So this is where the mycelium has taken everything over. And these are ready to be taken into the next room and grow mushrooms. There's other bags on shelves down here. So these have just been inoculated. So you can see all these little grains, and from each one of these grains, there's going to be mycelium that jumps off and starts doing its thing in this bag. And then we can see other bags here, some like right here. You see it's almost done, but it's still got a little bit to go. Interesting. Um, and you circulate these through the shelves then to know where you're going to go to bring it into the next right. room. Yeah, so yeah, we tried to keep everything in batches, but you know, everything is lock coded as well, so we can keep track of what's what. And Alex, is this a lion's mane? Uh, no, here? that's probably an oyster, so a, a blue oyster. It's just always interesting to see, you know, the process starting out real small, and then the next room you're going to see what they end up turning into. Here's a lion's mane, actually, so you can see. So kind of keep this in mind, because we'll see a bag um, where this has progressed, but it's now cut open. What does one of these yield? Um, so on average, it's about two and a half pounds on the first. So, so the first harvest, um, we call them flushes. So first flush, second flush, and so on. Um, so the first harvest, you're looking around two and a half pounds. 
Um, and if you have room and your process allows, you can keep um, some of these bags around for a second flush as well. Um, at that point, you're looking around a pound or so on the second flush um, and so on. So it's diminishing as you go on. Um, but yeah, it really it depends on your output to where you might have room for. And, and speaking of yield, are we still at around three to 400 pounds we're a right week? right at 300 pounds a week right I mean, now. Yeah, so yeah, we're steadily ramping yeah. up as restaurants open back up. That's impressive. Done. Can we take a look? Let's you do betcha. It. All right, let's do it. Heading on in. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. all right, let's take a look here. So this is the fruiting chamber. Um, so at this point, as you can see, we cut the bags open. At this point, the mycelium is exposed to cooler temperatures, higher humidity, and more oxygen. And these are all triggers that tell that mycelium is time to form mushrooms. Time to go. Um, yep, so, and you can see, that's what it's doing here. Um, so the bag's cut open, and now they're starting to... Um, Pinning is the first bit. These are beyond pinning, um, but you can see here, and it's called pinning because they'll start to look like pinheads. Um, and that's the first stage. So once they start deciding that this is a good environment to form mushrooms in, and then from here they'll progress pretty rapidly. Um, so the time frame is about two weeks in here, and then before that they will have spent about two weeks in incubation. So from start to finish is about four to five weeks. As far as varieties go, does it make a difference if you have one shelf, say lion's mane, and then you come to a different variety? And they, or does it matter how close in proximity? No, that, and that's what's really nice with gourmet mushrooms is um, you can grow a lot of different varieties and species in the same space. So what we shoot for in here is about yeah, mid to low 60s and relative humidity about 85% and above. And that is conducive to a lot of different species. So. Right, right now you're looking at lion's mane, um, there's chestnut, there's king oysters, there's blue oysters in here. Um, sometimes we have shiitakes as well. So there's a lot of different stuff you can grow all in the same space. Just pristine. I mean, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of these bags, so these are the second flush bags. So um, you can see these have already, you know, they've kind of been a little, you know, there's some craters and stuff. That's from when the, we picked the first flush. And then we just put them back on the shelves, and then over time they come back and give us more mushrooms. As far as maintenance goes and cleaning it, do you need to do much of that? Is this an environment? Uh, when we went over to the, um, uh, the the other unit that was more, yeah. uh, you know, greens and that kind of thing, this is a real different environment right. than that environment. What's the process of maintenance for a unit like this? Um, so about once a week, we'll come in here with a pressure washer and we'll just uh, blast the floor. And what's nice is we can crack these, the barn doors of the container open. Yeah. So we'll just start from this end. Really, we do the whole container. So we'll start from uh, the incubation space, pressure wash, and then just push it out, squeegee it out through the back. Um, periodically also, we'll ozonate the rooms um, just to you know, keep down any mold spores that may eventually get in here. But um, as long as you keep good airflow and air exchange, you're gonna be all right. So yeah, a lot of it is just kind of spot floor cleaning. I love it. I love it. What should people know, Jake, about how they can go about utilizing something like this for their needs? 
What? You know, uh, I would say the sky's the limit, really. Yeah. Um, we've been having a lot of success with restaurants, okay. uh, restaurant groups in particular, just because there is such a high yield that the average Joe is going to have a challenge utilizing three to 400 pounds. And people love mushrooms on their menu. And not only that, they love fresh mushrooms. In Absolutely. fact, some of the king trumpets that were over there with George yeah. Eater, he used that as a spectacle. He had to show everybody that right so if, if mushrooms are incorporated in your menu and you have one two three four five six sky's the limit locations yep. this could be a really viable option for you to give exactly what your guests are looking for yeah gourmet mushrooms are really booming in popularity uh -huh. we're seeing a lot of that and that's not even addressing vegan vegetarian restaurants mm -hmm. that have always used mushrooms as kind of a meat substitute this is taking it to a completely other level and we're not even talking about the medicinal attributes of say lion's mane you know dried ground up into a powder they're charging 25 bucks for a little container of this stuff so if you had an operation like this there's always the option of drying things selling things grinding things i mean Dried mushrooms work very well once they're rehydrated in just about anything so it's a very versatile setup yeah, I, I, this is an unbelievable operation. I love what you guys do here, and I want to also see the other container. I think we'll break away, we'll come right back. We'll take a time out from Farm Box Foods in Sedalia, Colorado, hanging out with my friends Jake and Alex. Jay Parker doing a great job behind the camera. We're going to sneak out of here, <laughs> we're going to come right back. We'll be in a different container in Sedalia, Colorado. The Modern Eater Show continues. Yeah. Hey guys, Alex Armitas over at Sam's number three, Glendale. You want a Bloody Mary? You want a cheeseburger? You want a breakfast burrito, Greek salad, bacon gyro meat, chicken souvlaki, barbecue ranch salad? We got you covered. Come down and see us. One more time. Try it again. Hey guys, Alex Armitas over here at Sam's number three, Glendale. Now get your ass to themoderneater.com. Thank you so much. Modern Eater, we love you guys. This is Amber with Northern Colorado Potatoes, reminding everyone that potatoes grown here are truly rooted in love and rooted in a long history of being grown in this area. Early 1900s reports show that this was either the largest or one of the largest potato producing areas in the nation. Other states have had some amazing branding, but don't forget we have all your favorite varieties and more you love to cook and eat, including russet. Support local potatoes, you won't be disappointed. Hey guys, it's Caroline Glover. I'm the chef owner of Annette out at Stanley Marketplace. Citrus is about to be in its prime. And you're watching the Modern Eater Show. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Right now, let me tell you about Jeff Rourke and A-Plus Beverage Solutions. He's the man with the plan. When it comes to tap installations and tap maintenance, Jeff Rourke is the most trusted man in the business. 20-plus years, family-owned and operated, does great work, and you might be knocking the rust off of your bar or restaurant and getting things tuned back up. He's the guy to call. If you're pouring in efficient beer, Jay, what are you doing? You're pouring your money down the drain. Uh, money. Don't do that. Uh, foam is money. Get a hold of Jeff Rourke, A-plus Beverage Solutions. Tell him what you need done. He'd be happy to come out and just take a look for you. Here's the phone number to give him a call, 720-272-3809. One more time, 720-272-3809. It's Jeff Rourke and A-plus Beverage Solutions. 
Okay. All right. From Farm Box Foods in Sedalia, Colorado, I had to put the glasses on because it's nice and bright in here. You know what we're doing? We're looking at a great, great container that has so many capabilities. And I want to talk to you a little bit about education and educating yourself on what this really means. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that this is taking away from soil farmers. Not at all. In fact, this could be a subsidy for soil farmers to be able to grow some of the things that they need when inclement weather is upon them or they're not able to yield what they wanted to be able to yield. Also, this is a way of the future, of being able to feed very consistent, growing, uh, I mean, it's endless, and that's why we're catching up with these guys, Jake and Alex. Here we are, Farm Box Food, and we have our new friend Fred, who's looking through his wallet to be able to give us a couple of dollars. <laughs> How's it going, guys? Fantastic. This is Man, what it's all about right Absolutely. here. Absolutely. The capabilities of what we have here, and I think they're endless, but again, it's just a one section to the next and cycling through. I'm going to ask a million questions, but I want to start right here in, uh, what would you call this area, the so starter? This is the seedling table. The seedling table. So uh, you see a couple of trays here. So um, these are seedling trays. These are filled with peat. And um, so you can see we plant the seeds in here, and then after a couple of days, um, they'll germinate and now they're starting to sprout so you can still see a couple of them where they still got the seed um, the outer seed coating on there um, and then they'll continue to grow and then we're getting bigger here those are some basil plants um, and then by the time they're ready to go they'll look like these these are big strong seedlings these are ready to be transplanted into the grow walls I love it. It's a balmy 60, what, 63 degrees in here, something like that. But everything is under automation. Right. Everything is analyzed. Everything is, is basically automized, yeah, automation. Show, show us some of the stuff that's running sure. this machine here. So we have a lot of components off right now just to um, keep down the noise. Um, but we have a lot of outputs that we can control. So all sorts of climate control, mm. all sorts of pumps, um, lights and uh, we have pumps that will control different um, nutrients. So um, there's sensors in the water tanks that will monitor pH and electroconductivity, and they'll keep everything topped off as needed so that we can have the proper, um, really, nutrient mix for the plants. Um, so they're happy, and they'll grow nice and big and sweet. Optimal environment. I mean, listen, this is, a, this is God. This is playing God right here, <laughs> truly, because the farmers had these kind of tools to be able to do with their land, and they'd use them. They would say, here's how much moisture I would like today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here's what I would love the temperature to be today. So just an optimal environment for growing and farming as well. And again, places for soil farmers, I love you. People that want to do aquaponics, I love you too. Hydroponics, I love you too. It's about education, educating yourself, and really what can it do to, at the end of the day, we want the most delicious food. And the chain just going, continuing going. What do you got to add to that, Jake? Uh, you know, I agree with everything you said there. I mean, farming, traditionally, you want, you want dependability. Mm -hmm. You want high yield. Uh, you know, if, if you're a farmer, maybe putting a few of these on your land. You already have the know-how. This isn't a threat. This allows you to produce pretty much whatever you want, mixed crops, you know, all day, all night, 12 months a year. Um, and it just cranks out. Because while these are starting, those are growing when you harvest, you then put these over there and it just keeps going. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Absolutely. Cycle. Uh, so 
What, the capabilities of this, again, if you're somebody who's looking to, uh, that you own a restaurant or a few restaurants, I mean, what a dream come true to have one of these on the yeah. property. Absolutely. And I think that there'll be some announcements here coming shortly yeah. uh, for Farm Box Foods of some of their different partnerships that they're developing, and that's exciting. When I look at this and I think of organic farming, which I love so much, truly an environment like this, guys, and you can fight me on this, this is how you can have a true organic environment. Yeah, and I'd like to add, you know, these buzzwords, you know, local, sustainable, all these things. This is pretty much the definition of that. Um, we're seeing a lot of success in certain areas, but we're wanting to see success in areas we haven't yet. I mean, think about schools, you know, high schools, mm -hmm. Cherry Creek District, you know, think about prisons, you know, resorts, islands. You know, we can ship these things globally. We can help, uh, you know, food sustainability globally. It's a good feeling. Let's take a little look at the product here. Now, this is an interesting setup because it's basically like curtains, right? Yeah. So you you manually manipulate these mm -hmm. to where you want them to be. Yep. And the methods to how close to the light or the environment and that kind of thing, is it, I mean, do you tweak it just by, I mean, talk to me how we, we would even approach sure. this as a novice like me. So um, the way we have them here, so we've, you know, we've pushed some of the walls apart to create an aisle for ourselves. And that's, that's a big part of the design is to be able to create space. So none of these are fixed. So that at any point you want to work on this wall, you can move everything aside and then have a nice big workspace. And then once you're done, um, you can move everything together. So um, you can move it with one person, you can move it with two people. Um, two people, one person would stand on each side and you just push and pull one person. I would walk over mm -hmm. to the middle and just do the same. Um, but once, you know, once you're done for the day, you're closing everything back up, you would just position these. Um, they're made to sit about 18 inches apart which is the optimal distance for the plants from the light. So if it grows, it can be here. Like, can I do uh, chilies or peppers yep. or anything that you can think of? That, I mean, I'm not growing pumpkins in here. Right, there, yeah, there are limitations. Since it's vertical, um, you know, we, we don't really recommend getting into, you know, things that get big root and vegetables. Heavy. Yeah, and right, yeah. and root vegetables. Um, but beyond that, it's pretty versatile. And with peppers, um, you can do a lot of a lot of different kind of peppers. We don't really recommend bell peppers because again, they get kind of big yeah. and the plant itself is kind of unruly. And it's just, yeah, things that vine can be a little bit tricky. Tomatoes? Um, with that said, yeah, we actually have some tomatoes in the back. Um, those are kind of more for us just to have some snackers while we're working in here. <laughs> but you know, it works. Cherry um, tomato. Yeah, just again, small, you know, yeah. so that the fruit isn't super heavy yeah. to weigh everything down. But you're not doing potatoes, you're not doing no. carrots, right. you're not doing any of those it's, types of it's, it's whatever you need, you know, and I would think that you'd go for, you know, the expensive items. The microgreens could go here, mm -hmm. your herbs like basil right behind you. Maybe, you know, maybe uh, heirloom cherry tomatoes would sound appealing on a salad right outside your front door if you're a restaurant. And I'm not going to get into the details, but the logistics of traditional getting produce from Arizona or California all the way to your dinner table in the middle of the country is extremely challenging. Mm -hmm. You're going to get five days to maybe a week, you know, more shelf life growing it right outside your front door. Uh, the things will eventually pay for themselves and you can advertise local, organic, sustainable. I mean, it really benefits everybody. Yeah, you could really start your own little business if you wanted to. Sure could. Absolutely could. Uh, no fruits, right? Would you do fruits in here? No. Zero fruits. Yeah, none. Yeah. Yeah, bananas are... Yeah, those, 
Yeah, there are I limits. Can have an orange Co- tree coconuts. Back there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are limits. Oh. So you guys too, and I learned this just as we were walking over from the um, the mushroom container that uh, you actually bring some of this stuff to market yourself yeah. as well. Yeah. So talk, yeah, talk about that portion. Um, the mushrooms we sell to restaurants and grocery stores around Denver, um, and the produce from here we are currently partnered with Centura Health. So this farm is actually so this farm belongs to Centura Health. Um, we are running it for them. And with the harvest, we uh, take them to uh, several hospitals around here down in the South Metro region. Cool. Exciting. I mean, to live in a day and an age where, you know, a huge hospital group like Centura is growing fresh organic produce to help feed their staff and help, you know, heal their sick patients there. And we got the logo right here. This is, you know, could be the beginning of something huge across America. It's very impressive. I love it. Okay, here's where I always say it, that 30-second elevator speech of why to come down. And that's what I would suggest. I would suggest that you come down and meet these gentlemen here. Uh, you're going to tour the facility. You're going to see their passion for this. The expertise and knowledge is really where it's at, but there's a two-prong to it. Uh, Farm Box Foods would be happy to hook you up with a container for yourself and your needs and actually train you and uh, help you just grow, grow the food that you're looking to grow for your facility. But the, also, you have this great stuff that you can uh, actually facilitate for folks that want to buy the mushrooms from you. And I think that's fantastic. All right, who you want to, let's do 30th piece. You give your 30 seconds. You know, I'd say uh, everyone who's excited by this, you know, get creative. We can't think of everything. These can be used in limitless uh, possibilities. Um, you know, I would say we, we would be happy to give you a tour there every Friday, 10 a.m. Come on down, give us a visit. You can go to our website, farmboxfoods.com, fill out a contact form, and we'd be happy to help you out with local, sustainable, affordable produce that we think is going to change farming uh, globally. And it, it really, and at the end of the day, if you're a skeptic or you just want to learn more, uh, get a hold of these guys. They're happy to share the education with you, and I think that that's really the component um, that you want to do is just educate yourself. Come down and get educated and take a look at the capabilities of this. Um, truly, it's, uh, their farming is very multidimensional, right? This is adding another dimension, Alex. Yeah, and yeah, building off of that, yeah, we're not trying to replace traditional farming. We believe this is a supplement. Um, there's just a lot of applications for this where, you know, other types of farming might not make it. So inner cities or food deserts or just really northern climates, um, you know, we think, you know, everybody deserves fresh, healthy food. I agree. Um, and yeah, we're just trying to provide a solution and help people get that. Utilize it as a tool. Uh, educate yourself. Give me the website once more. That's going to be farmboxfoods.com. Farmboxfoods.com. Uh, come take a tour, right? Maybe we'll meet you down here. Alex, thanks for your time. Of course. All right. So from Sedalia, Colorado, this has been a great tour. I hope you enjoyed yourself. If you have any questions, reach out to you guys, and we're going to do more research th- on this because uh, I really think it's an interesting, fascinating thing that I'm going to learn more about, too. We'll see you down the road. Checking out for now, and we'll be back with you soon, the Modern Eater Show. We continue. <laughs> hey. <laughs> What's going on, everybody? This is Brother Luck from Lucky Dumplin', 4 by Brother Luck in Colorado Springs, and I am rocking with the Modern Eater. You're watching them, you're tasting them, you're knowing everything there is to know about Colorado. <laughs> Hi, Charlie from Brews Beers here. Our new Belgian Abbey Four Pack is a mixed package of the four core beers made in Abbey and Trappist breweries in Belgium. So we have a single, a double, a triple, and a quadruple in one package. 
Now, quadruples are the emperors of Belgian monastery ales. They're dark in color, uh, with a dense tan head and alcohol ranging from 8 to 12%, so they're pretty strong. Quadruples are very rich and complex with big maltiness, uh, spice, and flavors of raisins, cherries, and plums. Alcohol is apparent in the mouthfeel, but not overwhelming, uh, even at 10.5% ABV. So the finish is long, complex, and dry, and they're great beers anytime, by themselves or with hearty foods. Pick up your Abbey 4-pack at either Brews location, 67th and Pecos, or at Colfax and York, and at fine liquor stores throughout the Denver metro area. Take home some Belgian-style badassery today. the outtake version. What's up, Denver? I'm Chef Natasha Hess, and this is Chef Carrie Baird, and we are at the Ginger Pig. Check us out, gingerpig.com. You can also see us on the moderneater.com. Thanks, everybody. It's cornstarch. I know. It's cool. Making education cool again, Jay. You know how? Culinary Quick Start Program. We are in love. They're using Studio Kitchen Colorado Monday through Thursday. If you have any desire to get into culinary, or you're just sharpening your skills, I'm telling you, these guys, Chef Blake, Chef Marcus, they're instructing a course, and I've been there the past couple of nights, and this course is cool. It's informative, it's innovative, and it has the modern eater touch on it. You can tune into this as well, but you have to sign up for the course. If you go to themoderneater.com, you'll see it on the top navigation bar. It's a drop-down. Emily Griffith Culinary Quick Start. All of the stuff that we're doing and sign-up information is right there for you. It's a gimme. It's free to you. It's like the cooking classes you pay for. Don't pay for them anymore. You just sign up, and what is the best part of this thing? We got jobs for you. The troops are rallying. The community's getting together, and there's a baseline. So restaurants, if you want to get involved, you're a restaurant tour. you can get involved because we need you and you to support this program with your skills. So what does that entail? This entails getting together and having a job seminar for these students. It's going to be a baseline. You need a baseline of knowledge for your students for when they come in, you know they're going to be able to handle a line in a kitchen. So get involved. If you have any interest in signing up and being a student for this class, you can't get in on this three weeks, but the following three weeks you can get in on. Again, sign up, themoderneater.com. You'll see Emily Griffith Culinary Quick Start. But we want you to join the revolution of making education cool again. Okay, back to Elevation Food Service reps. Hi, I'm Amber with Strohauer Farms. And I'm just here to remind you that the best potatoes are grown here in Colorado. Goodness elevated. Thanks for watching the Modern Eater Show.
Hey, Zach Kreider here, Colorado Mills Sunflower Products out of Lamar, Colorado, your only local source grown from a local crop to produce a local oil for local chefs. You can find it at Shamrock Foods, What Chefs Want, Seattle Fish Company. Uh, let me try it one more time, then we'll see. Hey, restaurants, we're glad you're reopening from Colorado Mills Sunflower Oil. We'll see you soon. <laughs> First, we partner with the best farmers in the world. And then we tell them, we will take it all. Process whole spices daily, blend custom spices to order, keep it fresh, safe, and flavorful, all so that you can get back to doing what you do best. So whether you're a restaurant, a food manufacturer, or an at-home cook, be sure to visit The Spice Guy at www.thespiceguyco.com. Hey, Modern Eater fans, I'm Don Trobo with the Annex by Art at Mills, and I just wanted to give you a heads up about some of the great things we've got going on locally in the state. We're headquartered right here, and we're working with farmers in the San Luis Valley to bring you amazing Colorado quinoa. It's just like the South American stuff, but grown locally. We've got transitional wheat flour that's grown by farmers in Colorado and surrounding states who are in the process of, of turning their fields into organic. So we're taking that transitional wheat and turning into flour and now it's available for you to cook and bake with and last but not least we're now cleaning grain berries in denver so things like spelt or wheat berries uh, or pearl barley those are things that we're now doing right here locally and are available to you can't wait to share it with you <laughs> hi i'm jeff nations from aspen baking company it's really important right now to support local that's why i support the modern eater now, back to the show. Hey, you want to see something cool? I'll show you something cool. First of all, nothing cooler than Fred. What's going on, Fred? Well, I just drove one of my rarest Jeeps out. This is a three-wheel Jeep, one of three ever built. But I'm a military vehicle restorer. I have several Jeeps here, and I'll show you an amphibian Jeep in a little bit. Uh, I have an early Ford Jeep and then a Mighty Might. But I also have something else you might find interesting a 1942 weather station. Wow! It's taken me 35 years to collect all the parts for it. It's got a problem. Yeah. The problem is a passion. It's called OD Jeep. paint. <laughs> Check it out. Here's the story of this 1949. Uh, what is it? A Davis. Davis prototype Jeep. And uh, you can hear it. It's What's running. this stuff called? And Grapple. It's pristine. And when it's kind of in between like it's rain and snow. Parts. Everything's original. Like down to the cold. engine and even the electrical oh, wiring, which is Colorado scary. Are we hot? I don't know. You know, that's why I have a couple cats oh. around to keep the mice from eating it. I'll I'll hop in this, I'll drive it around and pull it and put it in the back building, and then I can show you some other Jeeps. If you can like. I sit in it with you? Absolutely. Let's hop in. It. Let's go for a drive. Oh my goodness. Now this is a piece of Americana history right here. Yeah. This, this is the perspective that Davis did for the military. And the labeling on the outside of his Aberdeen Proving Grounds. That's where it was tested. Unbelievable. So this is three on the tree? Right. Boy, most people don't even know what that means anymore. Three <laughs> on the tree. We'll go out here in the yard and turn now around. Now this baby's 70 years old. Yeah. 
but it rides very smooth. Yeah, what's under the hood? It's a little Continental four-cylinder. Continental four-cylinder. So what kind of environment would one of these be utilized? Well, they were hoping the Navy would buy it and put it on an aircraft carrier and use it for shore patrol and things like that. Uh, or used on a military base. As a tactical vehicle, it was not a very yeah. promising vehicle. In fact, you can go on the internet and see testing this exact vehicle at Aberdeen Proving Grounds, and it's almost a laugh. Unique rare Jeeps, like this is probably the rarest one. Uh, and this is one of your many workshops, it looks like. Is this one that you do a lot of the restoration? Yeah, I used to use the big shop over there, but uh, you know, I just maintain things now. I don't really restore anything anymore. I just maintain vehicles. What a Keep them running. Beautiful ride. So now what will you do? Are you looking for a home for this? or is? Oh, no. This will go to a museum someday. I'll give it to my kids. They'll do something with it. I have a, as I say, a weather station, which will probably go to Wright-Patterson. I talked to a general out there several years ago about accepting that. But I don't restore anything for money. It's just a labor of love. Well, you never go inside. Look at this, you live out here. I love it. And it's not the easiest thing to get in and out of, is it either? No, especially when I got a belt hung up on me here. Oh, it's the uh, the radio transmitter. I couldn't figure out what, I'm gonna take it out of my pocket. Did this have a top to it at all ever? It did from the factory, but I never had a top produced for it. You see the bows are on it. Uh, Great history. Unbelievable. What a treat catching up here today, Fred. I'll show you some real history, though, that isn't a Jeep. Oh, uh, really? Okay. And it's connected to Colorado because I saw this on top of Mount Evans. I have no idea. What when I was six years old. You found this on the top of Mount Evans? No, this vehicle here, oh, this the first vehicle. time I saw it, was on top of Mount Evans. I'm going to set this up on out at our ranch on the 6th of June, which is D-Day. This one particular big vehicle in here was produced. Whoa. Oh, my goodness. I'll move some stuff out of the way here in a minute. Big vehicle is a weather station. What would they use this for? Just to transport cargo? No, it's a complete weather station. No, it's not. Yes. Explain to me. I saw it when I was six years old on Mount Evans. It was being run by the University of Denver for the Air Force. It's a complete weather which, station. This is Army Air Corps. What was its capabilities? Uh... Forecast weather, taking all the weather information, transmit it. These were what were used to forecast the weather for Operation Overlord, which was the invasion of Europe. Uh, the unique thing about that is, is that I got to meet one of the weathermen, one of the World War II weathermen that actually ran this in 
he was I'm gonna set this down out of the way she can come back here I can't even believe what we stumbled into here this is amazing Richard Bundegaard was born in Denver and graduated from the University of Denver ended up with a master's degree in mathematics and a minor in music he couldn't get a job so he got a job at Douglas County High School as a band teacher in 1942 he was drafted and the rest is history he became one of the world's foremost upper air weather men unbelievable wow that is a piece of Colorado but history right here's there. the uh, this is my amphibian Jeep what I gave you a card of uh-huh I drive it in the water that card I gave you is coming up out of uh, this thing, it looks heavy it will float it's heavy they yeah they they weren't too good in the ocean but to cross rivers and stuff like that yeah. to get behind enemy lines in fact most of them went to the Russians during the war the Russians loved them then of course you have to have your ultimate Jeep accessory that's a 37 millimeter cannon I don't know if you can Holy see that cow. I was stuck looking at this gun right here Fred that's just an M1 Grand that's 37 millimeter that's what they pulled behind Jeeps then in here as I told you I've spent years I have over 800 items I was gonna wonder if you were gonna all the different way. items they use to forecast to measure weather oh my goodness it's a little bit of disarray cause, but you can see it's got all of the original equipment in there yes everything is that, is that a telegram up there telegraph no that up in the corner is a fax machine a world war ii fax you're machine. kidding me took 20 minutes to send one page underneath this container here is the teletype there's a biograph mercurial barometers uh there's wind distance meters. This needs to be There's in the museum the like immediately. Why, well, why you know, I, I keep it and play with it. I take it to air shows and stuff. Do you really? It was down in Colorado Springs last, no, year before last All right. at an air show. I take it out to the B-17 fly-in. It'll end up in Wright-Patterson probably in a museum. How many of these are around? That this you know? is it. This is it? There isn't another one. There's some other K-53 trucks, but not, none of the equipment in them. And where'd you find it on Craigslist? No, I, <laughs> I found it. On, well, the first time I saw it was on top of Mount Evans. Uh huh. And then it showed up out of the Lowry bombing range in a sealed bid to GSA. And all I could see is with binoculars because I couldn't get in. I bought the thing. It, it, and when I brought it home, didn't have someone to pull the wheels off. And I had to put the wheels back on it. Uh, Would you be opposed to Jay walking up that step ladder and looking inside? No, here, uh, let me set you a real ladder up instead of the little step ladder. I get up with that one. Right well, this will make it easy because, you know, I get up in there and work on things, and I can't walk up that I'd step ladder. I'd love to just get in there and show some of this stuff off. This is a piece of history that is You'll one of You'll see the ceiling projector in there. Uh, the ceiling projector, do you? That's you, the original ladder. Did you know that, Fred? No, this isn't. This I have the original ladder, but <laughs> not this one. This one I actually modified. It's a military ladder. 
you can get on that and walk up. All right, Jay. Get up in this baby right here. I mean, what a treat. So get, talk about some of the guys that would get up in here to go to work for the day. Oh, yeah. Six guys stayed on the thing. Six guys stayed on it? Right, 24-7. Well, you're just getting right up in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. It's, as I say, it's kind of in a little bit of disarray because uh, I've been unpacking and packing things. This is the, <laughs> see my kitty's been in here. <laughs> I had the door open and she walked in with her little muddy feet, so... I got to clean it up and get it ready for a show this summer. Just start pointing and telling stories. What's that box for back there? The straight back. That's a theodolite. And uh, with a theodolite, you can measure the wind velocity by putting up a weather balloon of the winds aloft. You can also use it to find true north. And you could use it to tell the height of the clouds, but... What they do to tell the height of the clouds, they have a little, this little deal right here called the clinometer. Now, truly, a vehicle like this was very important for logistics to be able to know or forecast what to do with your troops, right? Right. That's a clinometer. The, the true weathermen called this the beer bottle. <laughs> they the would beer bonk? The beer bottle. Bottle, okay. They would look through it, and they would see where the, what the, de the degree is here. When they were looking at a cloud, and you can't see where you are unless you step up. That's the ceiling projector, which would go on the back of the vehicle. Okay. And they can measure the height of the clouds. And that's very important if you set up at a runway you just built because you need to tell the planes you know, how high the clouds are so they can come down and land and not smack into the ground. Yeah. Then, of course, you're taking constant barometric readings so you can reset their altimeters. Huh. Remember, they didn't have fancy radar. No. Like we have today. And so tur turn around there with that jacket right there. Wh whose jacket is that? Oh, that's what they wore. That is a air weather jacket. Uh... I actually have two pins on it. I have one that's an observer and one that's a forecaster. They would only wore one pin, the, the forecaster or the observer. What's the allure and a question that I just don't know enough about, but I know there's a lot to when people reference the weatherman. Um, their place in history, and why, why is it so interesting to folks? Well, <laughs> weather, we survive every day. If it wasn't for weather, we wouldn't be here. You know, I mean, whether... Was it a certain tight-knit club, though, or a group of... Uh, no, and actually with the Army, the first weather people that observed weather, of all things, were the medics. Because the medics thought, this is during the Civil War, they thought that it had something to do with health, you know, if the weather changed. So they kept all the weather records. Then, then started the Signal Corps. The Signal Corps kept track of the weather after that. And then the Signal Corps kept track of weather and weather logs and forecast weather up until the end of the Second World War. Then the U.S. Weather Bureau took it back over again. Mm -hmm. But the Air Force today does all their own, own weather. 
We could spend all day here. Oh, I could go on here for hours. And and listen, I mean, what... I could talk about all these different instruments. This is a very rare thing. In fact, when I was showing this to World War II guys, they kept saying, and every instrument has starts with an ML number, which means meteorological. And they they all asked me, said, well, we've seen a lot of your instruments, but you don't have an ML... I think what the number on this one is. An ML 325. Looks like a level. No, it's a very special thermometer. I don't know how good your eyes are, but can you read the temperatures on that? Well, let's take a look. Where does it start? It's an unusual. Minus 70. Goes down to minus 70, but it starts at freezing and goes to minus 70. But see, that's extremely important if you're far north because. As the north starts to warm, the jet stream changes and pushes the temperature and the weather down. Well, we see it every day. Like we're in a, a, a warming, cooling phase right now from the highs to the lows. It, it looks brand new. Well, everything in here basically is new. I, I can't open up the theodolites right now. They take quite a while to open, but the theodolites are... And as I say, I've been collecting things for... And most of it's all dried up. I, I go to different military shows. And guys have helped me find things, too. Yeah, I can tell. What I'd like to do is um, see, wh- do you have another thing you can show us? Show us one last thing? Sure. Uh, the, the, I thought you had a Jeep queued up for us yeah. across the yard. Yeah, I'll show you a different Jeep across, but the amphibian Jeep is that one. Let me. And this is the amphibian Jeep right here. This yeah. is gorgeous. All right, here's what we want to do. We're going to break real quick. We're going to come back. We're going to look at this amphibious Jeep. This is nothing that we actually thought we would stumble across, but this is too good to pass up. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am right now, catching up with Fred and just showing us this great, I mean, these relics are amazing. I can't believe we're seeing them. Thanks. We'll be right back. The Modern Eater Show continues. Hey, you guys. Jay here with The Modern Eater Show. Thanks for watching. Don't forget about our YouTube and Instagram channels. A lot of killer content over there. Throw us a subscribe on YouTube. Throw us a follow on Instagram. And thank you for supporting TME. We couldn't do this without our amazing sponsors, so let's check them out right now. Very proud to be part of The the Modern Eater. And uh, chefs, restaurant owners, any food service operators, you know, I know right now that uh, delivery and carry out is bigger than ever, and we got you covered. Uh, Cambro uh, has a full line of uh, delivery and carry out items. More economical options are expanded polypropylene or EPP, a uh, nice insulated container. Uh, the Procard Ultra is really versatile. It's a great unit because you could actually store cold products down here, hot products up here. It's all 120, there's no refrigeration worries. It's all thermodynamics. Just let us know what your food service challenges are, what it is we can do to help you out, and there isn't anything that we can't do for you. So uh, hope to see you over here at our facility in Park Hill soon and uh, stay safe out there. You know everybody, with several million dollars of hard assets here, insurance is very, very important to us. Ewing Levitt covers it all. Machinery, building, workman's comp. Ewing Levitt's got us covered from the floor to the ceiling, from our alley, even to the street. This divider, this press, my cooling conveyor, my oven. Ow, ow! Ewing Levitt covers our counter stacker and our employees too.
need insurance, take it from Little Rich at Rockalitas. Call Ewing Levitt, they'll get you covered. Hey, this is Keegan from D-Bar in Denver. You guys might find it difficult to stay in touch and stay up to date with the ever-changing culinary scene in Colorado. It's almost impossible. Just tune in to the Modern Eater. These guys have their fingers on the pulse of what's happening in all of the food and beverage in all of Colorado. They're behind us. They understand the idea of shopping local and shopping small. To support them, you support us. Right, you guys, back to the show in just a second. I'm here in Colorado Springs with Chef Noah Siebenaller, and we're here to tell you about bread and specifically Aspen Baking. Aspen Baking Company has been baking the best bread in Colorado since 1994. Chef, I know you use Aspen Baking Company here. What do you use here? Why do you like it? So um, I use their sourdough, their French Parisian, their burger rolls, marble rye, and slider rolls. Um, I, I was introduced about three and a half years ago, and I haven't found a better bread in Colorado since. So we use it for exclusively for everything. I'm telling you what, you guys, don't take my word for it. Take Chef Noah's. They're making quality product. They don't put in the, 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 the fake colors. They don't put in the chemicals. They don't freeze it. They don't do that stuff. They just bake fresh bread. Aspenbaking.com is where you go to get that bread. And uh, now back to the show. Okay, we're back. Check it out, Fred. Uh, this Jeep right here. It, so you, you've shown me just one of a kind. Th there's one of those, right? Only one of those. There's probably 80 of these in the world. Oh, for, let's go. But they've become very, it's very cool. pricey. You can see the prop up inside. So they would ship these up. Where would these go? Uh, like They went all over the world. They went all over the world. But the lion's share of them went to Russia. Purchased? But, but as ours or theirs? Did we sell them off? Oh, or? Lend, lend lease. We sold them to them. <laughs> Did we really? And then they used them up. They built their own version after the war called the Gaza 56. They're, they're fun to play with. Um, most of them never get played with anymore because they become worth so much. Uh, Who would be a manufacturer for one of these things? This was built by Ford Motor Company. Really? During the war. But the last one... There was one that sold here a year or so ago to a museum in Wyoming for 168000 I mean, $268,000. What? That's crazy. That is crazy. My son and I, when restoring this, we had about thirty or 40000 in it, finding all the parts. We said, I'll never be worth it, but at least we can go play with it. But they've gone crazy. You, like, where do you, where, you go, okay, I want one of these. Because look at, I mean, everything. There's no Well, detail. these are easy to find. Oh, okay. That anchor is very hard to find. You notice the tires say Ford on them. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were never really in the manufacturing of tires, were they, Fred? Well, but his, uh, one of his relatives, Firestone, was. Yeah. So Firestone. And then and the government says, get your name off of it. So he had to take his name off his tire. So all those guys kind of played around together, Firestone, Ford, and Edison. Oh, yeah, all of them. Uh, yeah, all of those guys. And, and so... This right here was something to where they'd go to those kind of genius minds and say, this is what we're looking for, see what you can come up with? Yeah, and see, the, the DWK, which is a large version of this on a chassis like that, is the big six-wheel drive. And it was the first one. It's hard to believe how they all work together. But they went to the Ford plant and pr produced the first DWK, which was on a GMC uh, chassis. Uh, at the Ford plant. Mm -hmm. the, this little vehicle was designed by Sparkman and Stevens. They were a yacht company. 
So they designed the hull. Nice. And so what, what's the name of it? Is this the USA 702724? That's the serial number okay. of the thing. No, the name of it is GPA. GPA. Yes. So if you're General Purpose Amphibian. General Purpose Amphibian. And which the military, they do a lot of that, like the ML, right? I mean, ML Meteorological. Uh -huh. Yeah. So a lot of them have just, you know. Yeah. So, so as far as this goes, say you, you were going to talk to me about what are the features? Oh, the fun thing is driving it in and out of the water. A boat is a boat is a boat. But the fun thing is just coming up to the shoreline and just right in and then you pull a lever and you're in the water and I can show you some pictures over here in that other deal. Is this drive? Oh yeah, I drive it all the time. <laughs> of course. In fact I drove it to physical therapy a week or two no, ago. No, you did not. Blew the guy out of his mind. <laughs> yeah. Man, I'll bet you people honk and yeah. what, what's the high end speed on this thing? Fifteen miles an hour? No, on the uh, on land you can go fifty. Fifty. On in water about six. Six. Six miles. You couldn't water ski behind it. You ever take it out camping? I've never had a camping. I take it out to Chatfield a lot. What a hit! And this thing is virtually indestructible, isn't it? Is the rudder right here? Yeah. Do you want me? I'll show you the rudder. When when I turn the steering wheel, the rudder follows the steering wheel. Watch this when I turn the steering wheel. I'll tell you what, I mean, the restoration of this, how much did you have to do to it, Fred? Oh, there was holes in it everywhere. It was an eight-year project. Are you a mechanic? Actually, I'm an electrical engineer. I ran a large company downtown Denver for years. But uh, growing up on a ranch, you did everything. So you welded, you... you and I was fortunate, the ranch I lived near, a guy was a midget car and sprint car racer. In fact, his best friends were the Unser boys. I don't know if you ever heard of them. Unser? Unser. In the Bobby race? Unser. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were racers. Yeah. So I grew up helping mostly tear them down. They wouldn't let me build them, but I tore down a lot of Offenhauser engines. <laughs> wow. You got something over here that you were Yeah, gonna I was going to show you the Mighty Might. Thank you. The Mighty Might, and I'll tell you what it is, it's an all-aluminum Jeep. Let me close this. We're in Sedalia, Colorado. We're hanging out with Fred. We did a farm box, uh, farm box foods tour and just couldn't help ourselves. Truly, uh, Jay, this is insane, isn't it? The amount of history that we've just seen in the past 20 minutes is probably more than you'll get in a lifetime anywhere. I'm blown away. I just want to sit down and uh, have a soft drink with Fred sometime and just really talk and catch we'll up. Sit down and have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say beer, but you never know. Yeah. All right, what are you going to show us now? Okay, I'll show you. What did you call it? Mighty Might. Mighty Might. And they a call Mighty it the Might is an all-aluminum Jeep built for the Marines only. And the thing about a Mighty Might, they're very rare. They're like a little little flying saucer. They're not as rare as an amphibian. There's probably several hundred of these out still kicking. But they only made about 11,000, 12,000 of them. Uh, they were used up mostly in Vietnam. I would have loved this Jeep as a kid because it's small, it's maneuverable, it's got an aircraft engine in it, a drone cool. engine, 
fuel? No, it uses gasoline. It was a little... Uh... All right, Jay, jump up in here. Yeah, jump up in there. Aluminum, huh? All aluminum. So it makes it lighter. Could be moved with helicopters real easy. Uh, so it's got lockers front and back. You can pull one tire off and drive on three. Let me see if I can get my ass up in here. Here we go. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, it's it's hell getting old. See, my kitties leave their paw prints. Man, where do I sign up to be Fred? Because this is too much, man. This. So, what's something like this worth? I'm not that that. Matters, well, this one isn't worth as much. You know, it's, it's interesting. I always thought these would be worth a lot of money. Uh, Thirty thousand, maybe, on a good day. Uh, and this the little Jeep in the back's worth forty because it's an early Ford. But I think these will become worth more because. Anyone that has an exotic Jeep collection wants a Mighty Might. I'll show you the engine. It's a cute little engine. Sounds like a Volkswagen A couple running. of batteries. That just goes in a deal. That's all right. It goes uh, Just, Just let it, yeah, I'll, I'll let it come down. It'll stay up. 24 volts. And see, it's a little uh, V4 air-cooled engine. Uh, Hudson designed it. Holly carburetor. Yeah. And the original ones of these had Porsche engines in them, and the Marines wouldn't buy them. They really? And so when, when Hudson designed the engine, then it, they were bought out by Mid-America Corporation, was bought out by uh, American Motors. So these were actually produced by American Motors. The oil looks good. Oh, yeah, well. You're better, huh? Yeah. <laughs> How do you keep these winterized? You... I start them all the time. And batteries are kind of a pain in the ass. Man, you make me feel so lazy, man. Yeah, we'll pick this up. We'll set it up on, yeah, come back the other, this, this direction. No, come back a little bit farther. Okay. Yeah, right underneath right that. There. All right. But the... The, the hard thing in this is getting in and out of it. And so the Marines, when they got them, they'd pull the seats out and throw them away, sit on sandbags. Really? Yeah. So they could jump in and out a lot of you. Yeah, you, you got to pour yourself in into it. Interesting. Very interesting. So this baby right here, I mean, all terrain, this would be great to be just playing around in the hills with it, huh? Yeah, I played with it first for a little bit. It, the biggest problem with it is it's a um, uh, a chrome cylinder, if you know what that is. Chrome cylinder. They took the jugs and chromed them. So the chrome flakes off the jugs. Guys that play with them a lot pull the jugs off and have beer sleeve liners put in them. Yeah. <laughs> This old school one. It's a Jeep. <laughs> hey, it's good seeing you. I got to sneak okay. around to the back. Good to see you, Jake. Well, here, when we go around the back, I'll show you something back here. 
This one I've driven clear to Alaska. It's been above no, the Arctic Circle. No, you have circle. not. See, I went down the Alcan Highway when it was 50 years old, and I drove it above the Arctic Circle. Three other crazy guys went with me, and we went out to circle Alaska, and we had a lot of fun with what it. What a trip that must have been. It was. But see, and it's early Ford. Gorgeous. If this thing could talk, huh? See, there's pictures. There I am in the Colorado River. And these are World War II pictures, except this one I was at an air show and I loaded it on a C-130. That loadmaster, she, you look at me, not the guy behind you. I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> she was a nice lady. Well, you got walkie-talkie on you? No, my wife is always <laughs> worried about me. Get your ass back inside. Oh, man, there's a shovel. I'll be in a minute. No, I didn't fall. I'm just fine. Yeah. Okay, love you. Bye. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, 53 years of marriage, she's always worried about me. Well, hey, listen, we could all be so lucky. Yes, I'm very lucky. She's Thanks for showing us around. Will you spend more time with us in the future? Sure. You've got my number. That's my cell phone number on the card. Will you stay uh, upright and healthy and keep doing this stuff? You see any end in the future here for you with making these? Uh... Oh, let me help out. Oh, my God, that's heavy. Yeah, but you don't. You got to keep moving. A month ago, I couldn't lift that up there. So... That's cool. All right. Thanks for showing us around. This is my new friend, Fred. And Fred, um, I don't know. I want to learn more about you, so hopefully you'll have us back. Anytime. Just give me a call. Thank you, sir. Okay. Fantastic. Got to get your mic here. This is so cool. Okay. We're going to call <laughs> it a day right here, Sedalia, Colorado. We're on Fred's compound. I don't know how we stumbled into <laughs> this, but it's been an amazing day. Thanks for everything in the history oh, well, lessons. Well, too. thank you for asking. All right. We'll be back. The Modern Eater Show continues.